Kids, you can go to Kids on the Rock. I know how you feel. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 26, so you can be turning there, and I would encourage you to get your own Bible out and turn to Acts 26, because we're going to take it a piece at a time, and it might be good for you to have the whole thing out in front of you. And while you're doing that, before we get to Acts chapter 26, um, I tell you, it, it, it's been a good morning of worship this morning. God, our God deserves our worship and praise, and uh, it's wonderful to hear you guys singing all together. Um, today, I didn't know this till this week, but today is actually Sanctity of Life Sunday. I didn't know that. So what we're going to do before we get to Acts 26 is we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray together. Um, we're going to pray that God would bring repentance and protection to our nation, um, that we would seek as a nation to honor the image of God in every single person. Um, and we're going to take a moment to join with all of the other congregations that are all over this country praying uh, for life and praying for God's will. Uh, so do that with me. Let's bow together. Father, we do love you. And we thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you. We, we, what a blessing it is, God, to come with your people and to be able to uh, sit next to your people, God, and, and just hear, um, hear each other worship together. God, the, the fellowship of the assembly of your saints together. <clears throat> God, it's a, it, it, what a blessing. It, it's just a marvelous, marvelous blessing, and you've given it to your church, and we thank you for that. And God, we come today, and we join together with all of the other churches that are praying today for this specific purpose, God. We pray that, that, that abortion would be ended in all the states of this country and all over the world. God, we pray that, that the image of, of you, of the image of God in every single person, every single place, everywhere, God, would be valued, born or unborn. God, we pray that you would help us as a church to encourage and support and to help women that are facing such a, a, a momentous decision. And God, that you would be with all the, the crisis centers and keeping them safe and the work that they're doing. God, we pray that you'd, you would move the hearts of our government leaders and, and the people that are in authority to defend life. Uh, as your word says, you move the heart of the king. God, we pray that you would move. And God, we ask that you would give us the blessing of repentance as a people, that you would give us the blessing of your will, God, and that you would bring revival. Lord, we thank you, God, and we praise you. We pray that you'd be with us during the reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 26. We're going to talk today about hope on trial. I'm going to do the whole chapter, um, and I'm going to have to go pretty fast, and we're going to take kind of a bird's eye view of the text in most places. We're going to dig into it in some places. Um, but we're almost to the end of the book of Acts. There's only 28 chapters in Acts. And as we look at chapter 26, what we're going to find is all of the, uh, the themes and all of the events and all of the things that we've seen so far in the book of Acts, indeed in the entirety of Scripture, are coming to a head right here in this speech that Paul gives. And he's going to link them all together, and he's going to, he's going to give us really just a summary statement in this testimony before King Agrippa to not only why Paul has gone through these things and what's been going on as we've walked through the last several chapters and all these trials and persecutions and all of these riots and all this stuff, but also what all of the Bible's story is about. What all of Scripture is about, 
This, this chapter 26, 25 and 26 are a unit and they culminate in, in, in Paul's testimony before King Agrippa and before Governor Festus. And we looked and we ended at 25 last week and we saw all the events that lead up to Paul actually speaking. Today in 26, this is the speech itself. This is the sermon, the witness. And it's so important. It's so important. Not only because it culminates and explains the things that have happened to Paul so far, but it's, it's important for the story of Scripture as he explains this, his mission and his message and what he's been doing and what God has called him to do. He fits it into the big story of the Bible, the storyline of God's purpose from Genesis to Revelation. And it all centers on one thing, the hope of resurrection life fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's ministry is about. That's what his testimony today is going to be about. That's what all of Scripture is about. Now, when we left off at Acts chapter 25, Paul was on trial before Governor Festus, the Roman governor, and he invoked his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. We saw that last week. So now, no matter what happens, no matter what Agrippa says, no matter what Festus says, no matter what outcome uh, stems from Paul's testimony here, he's going to Rome. Doesn't matter what they say, doesn't matter what they think, he's going to Rome to stand trial before the court of Caesar. But the problem is, there are no charges against him that will hold weight in a Roman court. So we saw last week that the accusations were all of a Jewish nature, Jewish religious things. And so governor, the governor invites this Jewish king, King Agrippa, to examine Paul, hoping that he will help figure out some charges that Festus can write down and send with Paul to Rome. Y'all with me? Everybody remember that? Okay. In the last part of 25, we saw the scene set for us in the very last few verses. Paul is brought in chains before royalty and power as King Agrippa and Governor Festus. It says the military tribunes are there, the important people of the city are there into this audience hall, and that's where we pick up today. Paul is going to lay out his defense. He's going to tell King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, the reason that he is on trial. And as he begins to speak, he says that the reason he is on trial today is because he has a hope that is rooted in God's promise. Now make sure you follow me in your own text as we walk through this. It's really incredible and I'm only going to take it a section at a time. First, Paul begins with an introduction says, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. <clears throat> he says, I consider myself fortunate. Your translation may say blessed or happy that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all of the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I bet he is happy. He does feel fortunate or blessed to be here, to be able to give his defense before Agrippa. He's finally going to get to give a testimony without being cut off by a riot or a mob or an execution plot or something like that. And King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II is who this is, he is really an expert in Jewish religion and Jewish customs and all those things. So he has a framework to understand Paul's case in a way that all these Roman governors and all these Roman soldiers couldn't. So Paul continues by telling Agrippa straight out, right up front, why he is on trial. It says in verse 4, 
My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And then look what he says in verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to Israel's fathers. And he said it's a hope that Israel still holds on to, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? First, Paul says, everybody knows my Jewish credentials. I'm a Pharisee, the most conservative group of Jewish leaders and, and, and people that are devoted to God's law that you can imagine. We see that in the Gospels that sometimes, I mean, they're always enemies in the Gospels of Jesus, but they, they are holding fast to the law. They have a wrong interpretation of it and they think they can gain salvation by it, but they hold fast to the law. He said, I was a Pharisee. I was devoted to God's law, to God's word. But then look what he says. He says, I'm still devoted to the God of Israel. Verse 6, he says, I'm on trial right now because I hope in the promise God made to the fathers. I hope in the promise that God made to Israel. The reason all this has happened, Paul says, the reason I'm wearing these chains, the reason why I'm standing here before you, King Agrippa, is because I believe the promise of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all of Israel. He even says, I'm trusting in the same promise that all of Israel is still trusting in today. In verse 7, he says, this, this promise is the one to which the 12 tribes hope to attain. Now, they're hoping to attain it the wrong way. They're hoping to attain it by earnestly worshiping night and day, or it could be translated earnestly serving night and day. They're working hard trying to please God by their works in order to attain this promise. But it's the same promise, the same hope for which I'm on trial. And then he reveals what this hope is. The promise Paul hopes in, the promise God made to the fathers, the promise which Israel still hopes in, worshiping night and day, is the promise of resurrection, the promise of eternal life. He reveals this by asking this question in verse 8. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, when we read that as readers of Acts, and, and we've gone through this and we know the story, we know the gospel, immediately we know that Paul is going to start talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and he is. But here, the word dead is plural. It's not singular. He's talking about the hope of eternal life, the hope of resurrection for God's people, the promise of an everlasting kingdom, the hope of eternal life with God in a new creation where death has no more power and sin no longer separates mankind from God or God's people from God, a kingdom where God's people rest in His presence forever. It's been the hope of all of the Old Testament and the New. And in the Old Testament, this promise of life, this promise of resurrection, in Israel it was bound up with the coming of a Messiah. 
this Messiah would bring this everlasting kingdom. He would bring this eternal life, this deliverance of God. This promise was first made in Genesis 3 when God told the serpent as he cursed him, he said that he would send a seed who would crush the serpent's head. It was given to Abraham when God said to him, from your seed, from your offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was given to David when he said, one from your own seed, one from your offspring would sit on the throne forever. In Isaiah, he said that the Messiah would suffer for his people's sake, that he would give his life for their sins. The prophet Daniel said this Messiah would receive the everlasting kingdom and would give that kingdom to the saints. The resurrection hope of life was so tied to the coming of a Messiah in Israel that the promise of resurrection and the promise of the Messiah were often seen as one and the same. You can see this in Jesus' interaction with Martha when Lazarus died. You know the story? Martha told Jesus when he came, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus looks at Martha and he says, your brother will rise again. Martha, this good Jewish woman, said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks this good Jewish woman, do you believe this? Do you believe what I just said, that I am the resurrection? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah the Son of God who is coming into the world. The promise was so tied together, he could say, do you believe that I'm the resurrection that's been promised? And she says, yes, I believe you're the Messiah. Paul says to these, to these group that's in front of him, Agrippa, Festus, all the people that are around, this hope in God's promise is what this trial is all about. It's not been about the defiling of the temple or rebellion against Rome or stirring up crowds or dissension or all of the stuff that they say. He says to Agrippa here, I am on trial because of my hope in God's promise of resurrection life. And he asked in verse 8, why does any of you think that it's incredible that God would raise the dead? Why do you think it's incredible that God would keep his word? But the truth is that Paul knows exactly how and why that they would think this. Because he used to be one just like them, a persecutor of Christians. But what happened to him is he encountered the hope as it is fulfilled in Jesus. He says to them, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. You see what he's saying there? He understands now to say, to make them say, Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not Messiah, is to blaspheme God. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He re recounting his life as a persecutor. He says, you see the way that they are right now against me? I used to be just like that. 
even worse. They all know who I was and what I did. But then something happened to me, Paul says. Something changed me. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw uh, uh, on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and all those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not the church, not my people, me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads is just a sharp stick they use to prod cattle. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are per persecuting. As Paul relates this before this group, all at once, the people he's talking to understand now what he means by the hope of resurrection. This guy is saying Jesus is raised from the dead and that the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth met him on the road to Damascus. Agrippa would have known immediately that he means Paul's claiming Jesus is Israel's Messiah raised from the dead. God has raised his Messiah from the dead and that Jesus is alive today as Paul is speaking. Paul claims that in a single moment, his fanatical opposition to the name of Jesus was overcome and he was transformed not only to stop persecuting Jesus, but to follow Jesus and to worship Jesus. His, his opposition was overcome by God, by the God of Israel. The promise given to the fathers of Israel, the promise given to Israel has now come to pass. That's what Paul's saying. And it's real and it's here and it's right now. Eternal life and resurrection from the dead have now come through the death and resurrection of this man named Jesus that Paul is proclaiming. The hope of mankind from the beginning of all creation after the fall has now been fulfilled. The seed that would come and crush the serpent's head, he's here. He has come. The son has been given. God has sent his salvation, his promise. God has given life. He's brought his kingdom and it is through Jesus of Nazareth. That is what Paul is saying here. And not only did Jesus transform Paul, but Paul says that it was the Messiah of Israel who gave him the commission to proclaim this hope to all people. Now, as Paul's preaching this message, this is still Jesus speaking to Paul. He's giving this information to Agrippa. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, but rise, he's talking to Paul, and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, made holy by faith in me. Now, I've been going really fast through the text. Let's slow down here and take a, take a really good look at this. First, Paul tells them 
that it was Jesus, the God of Israel, the Messiah, who commanded him to preach what he's been preaching, and which is why he's on trial. Jesus told Paul, I appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness. It's remarkably similar language right there to God's commissioning of Ezekiel and Jeremiah as prophets. He tells Paul, you're going to be a witness. You're going to bear witness to what I've shown you and what I will show you. And Jesus says, I'm going to deliver you. Look at this. Paul is standing before a Jewish king and a Roman governor. And he said, Jesus told me I'm going to deliver you from your people and from the Gentiles. And then Israel's Messiah tells Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And look at the reason. Verse 18. This is why you're going to be a witness. This is why you're going to go serve. This is why I'm sending you to the Gentiles. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place. The word can mean a lot or an inheritance among those who are made holy, who are sanctified by faith in me. I'm sending you to open their eyes. He's telling him, I'm sending you to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles. This hope that we've been talking about of resurrection. I'm, I'm sending you to preach that to the Gentiles. To bring the hope of Israel's promise to all the nations. Verse 18 is describing salvation. It's easy to see. Salvation is the opening of their eyes. The turning from darkness to light. The turning from Satan's power to God. The receiving of the forgiveness of sins. The receiving of an inheritance of, of being made holy by faith in... That's salvation. Salvation is not just a change in status from being lost to being saved. Like you, like you jump out of the line going to hell and you jump into the line going to heaven and that's it. It's not just an intellectual understanding. It's a change of everything. It's all of life being turned from darkness to light, being delivered from the power of Satan to the power of God. It's being given a new heart that drives us to walk in the light of God. This is what Jesus himself, Israel's Messiah, sent Paul to proclaim to the Gentile. But it was not just Israel that he was sent to, which is the whole problem here. The pagan, nasty, dirty Gentiles? Really? The unclean Gentiles are to receive the forgiveness of sins, to receive an inheritance, a place with those who are made holy. The Gentiles were to have a, an equal share of the heritage of God's holy people and the promise to Israel's fathers. And look how this comes. Look how it happens. It's by faith in Jesus. He said, I'm sending you to proclaim all these things and they can have them by faith in me. It says at the end of verse 18. The Messiah of Israel commissioned Paul to preach salvation to the whole world. And that's the real problem. That's why the Jews hate him so much. That's why he's gone through all these sufferings and persecutions in the last five chapters. That's why in every city that we saw him facing riots and mobs and Jews chasing him from city to city... He stands before these earthly rulers and he says, The Almighty God commissioned me to preach what I've been preaching and His authority is greater than yours, O King Agrippa. And here is where the tables turn. Verse 19. 
In verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, because he commissioned me, because he transformed me, and he sent me to the Gentiles, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's what I've been doing. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. You see it? He says, I've been proclaiming to Israel and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now we get to the heart of the issue. This message of hope to all nations, this message of a Messiah for Israel to turn to and for the Gentiles to turn to, that's the reason that I'm standing here before you. That's the reason they seized me in the temple. Had nothing to do with political issues or rebellion against Rome. Nothing to do with defiling the temple as they accused me of doing. It's because I say the Messiah has come. And for anyone, Israel or Gentile, to be saved, to have this resurrection promise, to have the promise of God, they must turn to Him. Must turn to Jesus to receive God's promise. And then the Gentiles will also be brought into this covenant to receive the promise of life. That's why I'm on trial here. That's why they seized me. That's why they're trying to kill me. But Paul also recognizes that that's not the only reason that he's on trial here. Paul says, that's the reason that they, that they seized me was because I'm preaching this message but Paul says, God has also brought me here today, King, o King Agrippa, to preach this message to you. In verse 22, it says, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. As all these persecutions, all these trials, all of this stuff, God has been with me to this day. And so, thus, this is the reason I stand here testifying, both to small and great. That's the reason I'm here today. God commissioned me. God has protected me. God has brought me here today, Agrippa, to stand here and testify to everybody in this room, small and great. And what I'm saying is nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles. With this statement, Paul brings the whole of his message the whole message of the Bible, of Scripture, the storyline of God together in one single statement. And now we begin to see what he's doing. He's not just a witness for his own defense. Paul's not defending himself at all. This isn't a trial for Paul. He's going to Rome no matter what happens, no matter what these people say. God has brought him here today through this trial, through this persecution, through all of the things, the suffering that he's gone through, God has brought all this to pass so that Paul might stand here, even in chains, and proclaim this message to the king and to all the people in this room. Paul's not defending himself as a witness before King Agrippa. He's being a witness to King Agrippa. And this message is the fulfillment of all that Moses and the prophets said. He's, he's connecting it to all of the Scripture. You, as you read Genesis and Exodus and all of the Old Testament Scriptures, we're going through Exodus right now on Wednesday night. We're coming right to the point where the giving of the law. What we're reading about is Jesus. 
We're reading about the promise of resurrection, of eternal life. We're reading about who God is and God's purpose in this world to bring salvation to His people so that we would be one with Him and the curse of the fall would be done away with. He says, I'm preaching the same thing that Moses and the prophets said would happen, that the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer and that He would rise from the dead and then light would be proclaimed to all of the world. Light proclaimed to the world here is referring to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 49.6. He says, it is, is, it, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Listen, Paul's telling them the salvation of the Gentiles has always been God's purpose. Paul is saying God has fulfilled His promise. What I'm preaching to you today is what Moses and the prophets said would happen. That light would be preached not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. Paul is saying God fulfilled His promise, and that's what I've been proclaiming. I've not deviated from Moses and the prophets. I'm preaching what they told you would happen. This is what all of the scripture is about. And this message, this, this proclamation of God, this promise of God, it requires a response from you. As this speech ends, we're going to realize Paul's not the one on trial here. It's Agrippa who's on trial and Festus who are on trial. And it's time now to make a decision. This hope that I'm proclaiming, Paul might say, it, it calls for a response. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. That's like bless your heart in the South. <laughs> but I'm speaking true and rational words. Now, Festus' response is easy. All right, that's easy to see. He finally understands what all this has been about. It's about Paul going around all over the countries, all over the nations, saying Jesus, this Israel Messiah guy, has been raised from the dead and the promise of God's people that he's going to raise them from the dead. And just like a down-to-earth Roman pagan, he's not willing to believe anything beyond what his eyes can see and what his common sense tells him. The idea of resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead, just completely out of the question. In fact, the only category he has to describe it is, you're nuts. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. He says, you've been studying these Jewish scriptures so long, it's made you nuts. You're crazy believing these things. Festus' response is the response that many have today. Ridicule and just dismiss it all as the ravings of a crazy person. But Paul isn't here to debate with this pagan today. He responds calmly and simply, No, I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he turns his focus immediately to Agrippa, who was Jewish and did know the scriptures that Paul is referencing Verse 26, he says, For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He says, 
You might think I'm nuts, Festus, but King Agrippa knows exactly what I'm talking about. King Agrippa has heard of Jesus. He knows his life and ministry. He's heard what happened through Pontius Pilate. He's heard what happened through Agrippa I, his father, and Herod, his grandfather. He knows all these scriptures that you're calling crazy, Festus. So here's the question, King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets that I've been quoting? And with this question, the roles change. Agrippa is the one now being examined. He's the one on trial. And boy, is he facing a dilemma. If he says, yes, I believe the prophets, then Paul's going to say, well, then you must believe what the prophets say about the Messiah. If he says, no, I don't believe the prophets, then he's disqualified as a good Jew and a good Jewish ruler. So Agrippa sees what Paul's doing. He sees what comes next. And instead of actually answering the question, he challenges Paul's motive. He says, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul, you're here to explain yourself. You're here to show why you're innocent or guilty. A whole lot rides on what Festus is going to write to the emperor about you. And you're spending the short amount of time that you have trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Paul says, that's exactly what I'm doing. Verse 29, whether short or long, I would or I wish to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. As a matter of fact, I am trying to persuade you, Agrippa, and not just you, everyone here. Jew and Gentile, great and small. He wants all the people in this room, all the lost to find Jesus and he makes no apology for it whatsoever before this king. The great commission given by Jesus is more important to him than anything else, than making a defense for, for him, than, than making sure that they understand the truth about what's going on, although he has said it. What's most important to him is that the lost come to know Christ. God put him in this place under these circumstances with all the suffering, all the trials, all the chains, all of, all of the things that have happened to call these lost sinners to turn to Jesus. And that's his highest aim. That's what this has all been about. That's what all of the Bible is about. That's what our mission today is about. There's millions upon millions of books written about how to find the will of God for your life. I'm not a prophet or a prophet's son, but I can tell you God's will for your life. You ready? Profound. Make disciples. You know how I know that? Because that's what he said. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them everything that I've commanded. And I'll be with you. Make disciples. You might say, but nobody listens to me. They didn't listen to Paul either. In the very next verse... Paul says, yeah, I want all y'all to become Christians. They don't say another word. They get up and they leave. I've had enough of this. Okay, fine. You don't want to defend yourself? I'm out. I mean, they wouldn't say that, but you know what I mean. It says, then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, Bernice is king Agrippa's sister, and those who were sitting with him, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free 
if he had not appealed to Caesar. Was it wrong for him to appeal to Caesar? No, Jesus said, you're going to Rome. But notice in verse 30, no one listened to him. They've had enough of this evangelizing. Fine, if you're not going to let us sit in judgment over you, I'm, I'm leaving. We'll get out of here. We won't waste our time trying to hear your case. You're just trying to evangelize us. But at the end of it all, they know he's innocent. Just like Jesus, Paul is falsely accused and now declared innocent by a Roman governor and by a Herodian, a Herod, king. He truly is following in the footsteps of Jesus. In fact, everything about this speech points us to Jesus. From the events that happened to Paul, from the scriptures that he quotes, from the mission that he's been given to the attempt at evangelizing the people in this room. It all points to God's grand story. The big picture of what Scripture says. The fulfillment of God's purposes from, from the very beginning to bring the resurrection of His people to eternal life. And this grand story that Paul has recounted here, this grand purpose of God is still going on today. It's happening right now. That call is going out for you today. That call is going out from you to other people today, to the lost. God's story is still taking place. But there will come a day when this story will end. And it will end with a loud voice from the throne of God that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Resurrection life. Eternal life with God forever in a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation. This story will end... Where will it end for you, is the question. This story today, right now as I'm speaking, I can't tell you about 10 minutes from now, but right now as I'm speaking, this story is still being played out. 2,000 years later, this call is still going out. 2,000 something years later, Jesus is still alive today. He is still Lord today. And that call, that promise is still valid for you today. Still being made for you today to turn from darkness to light. To receive the forgiveness of sins. To turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. To have a place, an inheritance among those who are made holy by faith in me, Jesus said. And believer, you've received the same commission today that Paul defends before Agrippa to go and make disciples. To let this clarion call ring out from you and your life as Jesus uses you to make disciples. How will God's story end today for you? How will God's story end for you today? No. How will God's story end for you? The decision you make will be today. Give Him your heart and life. Trust in Him. And then be who God has called you to be. Disciple maker. Let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for... God, we thank you for this promise, the gospel promise, that we know that 
even through the sufferings of this life, even through the things we endure, even through the things of the fallen world that we're going to go through, God, there is coming a day when all of it will be made right, when we will live for eternity with you, where we will be bodily resurrected in a new heavens and a new earth and have life, real life, for all eternity in your presence. God, I pray that you would just impress upon us the glory of that, the magnitude of that, that we've received by faith in Jesus Christ. And God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would show them what you have done in sending the Son, in, in raising Him from the dead to pay for our sin that we cannot pay for ourselves. God, we are hopeless without the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope of ever pleasing you, of ever being right with you, of ever receiving anything from you, much less eternal life. It cannot be done outside of the work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would show that to the hearts of people who need you today, and that they would call out to you in faith, saying, I know that I'm lost. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I cannot do anything to affect my state before you, but I'm trusting in the blood, the body, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to pay for my sin. God, I pray that they would call out to you and put their faith in you. And God, help us as a people, as your people, to make this call known to the world and to everyone around us. God, your kingdom has come and is coming. And we have to be ready. Lord, we do love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. Please come. I would love to pray with you. Will you stand with me?